Hello everyone and welcome to the Disruptor Studio where we feature guests that inspire innovation, transformation and greatness. My name is Alex Gonzalez and I am thrilled to welcome a great friend and amazing leader today, Melissa Proctor. Melissa, in fact, is a brand new author as she just released her new book, From Ball Girl to CMO. And she, of course, is the Chief Marketing Officer and Executive Vice President of the Atlanta Hawks and State Farm Arena. Melissa's story, as you will hear today, and you can read about also in her book, is amazing. All the way from her childhood, where she talks about the rich culture that she grew up in, to discovering herself and her interests, her her really inside entrepreneurism and her passion for arts when she was a teenager, her pursuit of wanting to become an NBA coach that led her to becoming a ball girl. And then as she discovered herself at Wake Forest and of course her incredible career growth at Turner that led her to the NBA where in both organizations she led incredible transformation of brands and pushing boundaries that has long lasting effects. Melissa is an amazing leader as well, and we talk about her perspectives on leading change, dealing with naysayers, and how she embraces mentorship, both in terms of receiving it and giving it to others. She is an amazing person, so now let's listen to Melissa Proctor on The Disruptor Studio. Melissa, how you doing? I'm great. Thank you so much for having me. Oh, it is a pleasure to have you here on the Disruptor Studio. Welcome, welcome, and congratulations, by the way, because as we speak here, you have a book out, as if it's being, as if not being, you know, CMO of uh, this NBA franchise isn't enough, you got a book. (laughs) And I wish you were in video, I'd be showing it to everybody, but uh, but this is great. So what made you want to become an author? Thank you. You know, I never had that desire growing up at all. And uh, my daughter, my daughter was definitely kind of what inspired it when she was born. Uh, my mother had passed away a couple of years before. And mm-hmm. there were so many questions that I had for her and things that I wanted to learn. And I'm like, how did she do that? And, you know, different stages of life, different things are important or matter more. Um, and so I really just thought about the idea of putting together some stories. It actually started out as a blog, just different elements of my journey and things that I've learned along the way. So if ever... One day I'm not here. Hopefully she can refer back to it somewhere in the internets and read it and say, oh, that's great. And so every time I would speak, I would do a lot of public speaking, keynote speaking around my kind of journey and career. People would always say, you should write a book. And I was like, yeah, okay, yeah, sure. Um, but, you know, one day a chance meeting uh, with a woman, uh, Renita, from Mind Matters Publishing, uh, we had lunch and, you know, we started talking about the process and she does a lot of uh publishing of books for local authors and sometimes different executives and so she was like well what are you thinking and we talked about it and you know with their partnership was able to make it a reality so I'm very excited that's great so so what part uh, was it when you got into it was it just uh was it grueling or did it come to you pretty naturally or you know I had already written a couple of blog entries um on medium and so in my mind I was like I can do this not a problem so we came (laughs) with with a timeline and I was like I'll write a chapter every two weeks and I think after about a year, I'd written two chapters <laughs> because just time and, you know, mental blocks or, you know, different priorities and it's life in general. Um, and so I had to kind of take a different approach. Um, but it, I'd really I, I'd say it's really just kind of getting through and the idea of talking through the story is helpful and all the different methods of 
you know, instead of actually having to sit and type old school like a typewriter, right, you know, right. being able to record um, your thoughts and putting it in different places and perspective. But really, I think once we had the elements of the story, really understanding how to piece it together in a book and what should chapters right. be called and, you know, things that are very obvious, like, oh, we need a synopsis. I was like, wow, I really thought I was done here. And should there be a tagline? We debated a tagline for a while and the design of the cover, having different perspectives on the font and a lot of the things as a marketer I'm well aware of, but never applying it to my own story. So that was a very different process. Well, it's a great story, and I admire you because as someone who, as you and I have discussed before, trying to also be a book author, it's like you you uh, you think it's easy until you sit until you actually sit down. So I totally Literally. get that. It's like oh, it's like doing a bunch of blogs. Uh, no, it's not. But <laughs> and and of course the, the titles from Ball Girl to CMO we'll have in our show notes. Of course, links to it, and I definitely recommend. And, and by the way, as we get to our conversation today, I was. Um, inspired and connected. It's so cool when there's someone that you know, and of course, we get so busy when we see each other. It's at, well, it used to be in meetings where we actually would see each other, and now it's through Zoom or whatever. And you, and there's always this amazing vibe from you in terms of connecting because of your authenticity, and it's really cool. But then when you cut, you read your story, and as we can talk about it a little bit today, there's so many things we, you know, can can relate to. Let's get to that part of the book that says CMO. So for that person that for some odd reason that we won't hold them, you know, accountable for it. But if they don't know you, <laughs> what do you do for the Atlanta Hawks and State Farm Arena? Sure. It's funny because when I, I first showed my daughter the book, she's like, CMO, what is it? <laughs> CMO? It's like ABC. What does that mean? Um, well, and I'm sure for your daughter too, by the way, being CMO, you know, NBA team, you know, huge stars around you and you're still mom. <laughs> I am definitely. Right? Very much MOM. That's the the main title. Um, But I currently am the executive vice president and chief marketing officer for the Atlanta Hawks basketball team, as well as State Farm Arena. Um, I've been with the Hawks since around 2014. I came in really helping out with brand strategy and then shifted to kind of being the SVP of business strategy when we onboarded our new ownership team. And, you know, in the past couple of years, I've really looked at the marketing organization, focusing on marketing operations a lot of, you know, the advertising and promotion work, everything from our spots on television to social media across all of our social channels. Um, and it's, it's expanded, you know, over, over the years. And so now we've developed Hawk Studios, which is an internal agency mm. that we really look at all of our creative efforts. So from graphic design, as well as all of our video production, we have an amazing live production and live entertainment group in-house that are executing our games at one of the highest levels within the NBA. So think of our you know, huge center hung and all of the content that you say in games, our talent, you know, on court from working with Ryan Cameron and Big Tigger, you know, to our amazing dance team and mascot, you know, really managing all of that environment and the brand and how we bring it to life in the arena, as well as outside of the arena. You know, we have a brand kind of events team that are looking at, you know, local uh, events, whether they're festivals and when the Atlanta Hawks are present in an event outside of the building, how do we take the energy of the Atlanta Hawks and the brand and bring it to life? Um, in right. a lot of amazing ways. Uh, tremendous retail operations, so brand merchandising for managing our stores in the arena as well as our e-com business. And then most recently, uh, also bringing on, uh, we call it basketball programs, but really looking at how we impact youth in the community. So normally we have basketball camps that run all summer and clinics that we do throughout the year, which obviously in the current landscape, we've shifted to virtual. So we have a 
Hawks at Home platform, which has been tremendous in really being able to reach kids during a pandemic, teaching them the fundamentals of basketball and life, um, right. in addition to a lot of our corporate social responsibility efforts. So, you know, giving back to the community, we have an owner who truly believes the Atlanta Hawks are a community asset. And so it's an honor and a privilege to be able to bring that to life every day with our team. Um, right. And, you know, really looking at things from a, a lens of how can we take this brand and be true to Atlanta and then bring it to life across all attributes. Yeah. And so you've been, I mean, you've really been here. We're going to get a little bit more into this because it's an interesting time. I think when you got to the Hawks organization in terms of really replatforming the brand, which in itself is somewhat of a disruption. I think it's cool right here. And also this building of State Farmer. I mean, you were part of the Yes. building of State Farm Arena. Yes, and, and now you, you, I mean, you're so part of this is not just the Hawks, but the concerts and the events mm-hmm. and all the stuff to, to, with to all the promoters, to every event that we have, everyone who sets foot in the building and really looking at it as the town hall of our city and all of the different things, whether they're big public events or private events, you know, it's, it's, it's a really tremendous opportunity. So as we record this here too, um, you, you know, it's, obviously we're here. I, I, I think I spoke to someone earlier today, and it's like I think month six of COVID yeah. impact. I mean that this had to just. I mean, you're in the experience business. We are in the live oh. event business inside of an arena. So yes, it's a very different world. But I think I, I give you know a lot of credit to to our ownership team and all of our leadership because even coming together and having this space and looking at something like the elections. You know, and yeah. really being able to become a community asset by opening up our doors as an early voting location um, for Fulton County has been tremendous. We were the first team to do it in the NBA, largest voting precinct in Georgia. And now, obviously, for, you know, the general election, doing early voting uh, next month in October is going to be a really, really big deal and an important one for us. And so it's, you know, important to kind of blaze the trail. And we always want to zig when others zag and really kind of look at innovation first. And I think we've disrupted in a lot of different ways, but very positive through this really difficult time. Because if I think back to it, too, I mean, the NBA, to me, was really the one who started this domino. Absolutely. I mean, I shouldn't say started the whole domino, but it was really, I believe it was one of the, the NBA uh, ones that canceled and bam. Mm-hmm. How was that in the, <laughs> you're sitting in your office there. I know. I, I mean, no. how much, did you even have time to process this? This was very much real time because there were a lot of conversations and saying, you know, there was a lot of un- uncertainty, not knowing what would happen if we were going to be able to play the end of our season because we were very close to finishing up our season. Um, it was going to be Vince Carter's last game. So we were doing yeah. a lot of plans around that. And literally we were during a game, I think it's probably around third quarter uh, of a game in March when you know, the NBA decided that they were going to suspend the season and we were in the middle of putting on a game. And so very quickly, you know, that props to Joe Abercrombie and Drew Frank on our team because they made the call and said, hey, you know, we need to run this. This may be Vince Carter's last game right now. And so what can we do? And had fans cheering, you know, put Vince wasn't playing. And so got coached to put him in and had a moment and put up content of him, you know, scoring and all of some of the content we had created for him throughout this final season for him. But, you know, it was incredibly surreal. And even at the end of the game, being able to speak with members of the team, you know, and saying, thank you for a great season. We may see you in a couple of weeks. We may not, you know, but not even knowing what direction to give, but just expressing as much gratitude as we could, because this was one of the most tremendous seasons we had had from a business perspective. We launched our Peachtree City Edition uniform. There was so much amazing momentum, you know, it was improvement on the court and just really being able to see everything that we were building, 
you know, and the excitement around the Hawks. It, you know, stopped short, obviously, for tremendous reasons, but I will never forget that moment because it's truly leadership in the moment. In addition to the Hawks momentum, too, for, of course, for the sport in Atlanta, as you as you know, you know, well, I mean, the final four was yes. just around the corner. And I remember talking to you, so, someone you and I know uh, well from, from the sports council and and that one of those days where it went from. Oh, I, we're just going to have some limited people yeah, to no we're just going to have a few events to no fans to we're just not going to have it all within like 24 hours. So so how do you uh, and, and I definitely want to start, uh, start getting a little bit further back here in terms of uh, uh, kind of your career as well. But, but talk about leadership moments. I mean, you talked about, you know, saying thank you to your to your you know staff. But particularly as we sit here today, you know, going into the fall of 2020. And how do you lead in a way of keeping your team inspired, especially for the type of business you're in, to kind of have the belief that, you know, this grand trajectory that, you know, you're on is still on. So how do you help your team kind of see that? Well, you know, uh, it's, it's a good question because I do think the uncertainty around our business and knowing when we're coming back and what that looks like. Is, is a challenge, but what I appreciate most is kind of the alignment around what our company believes and what our ownership believes and what I believe in as a person and really wanting to be a community asset. So many mm-hmm. of the things that we've done where it might get picked up in the press, for example, voting, are things that are a mark of pride for our team members. And so it's a lot, it's very easy to kind of inspire when they see the work that we're doing and there are people calling them saying, oh my goodness, you launched those new uniforms. For the Hawks, that was amazing. You know, we wanted those colors back for so long. It's almost a sense of pride that we've built in the brand almost transcends even what I can do as a leader. Because if it was a brand that no one cared about and, you know, they didn't have care in the work, that would be very different. But I do think they believe that what we're working on is meaningful and impactful. Having outside uh, collaboration of that say, hey, you know what, we really are appreciative of the work that you're doing and seeing the impact that it has. Like going out and feeding people you know, after COVID hit in neighborhoods that were food insecure, they saw that. Even being mm. able to do that for some of our part-time staff internally, it's really treating people well. And I think on a day-to-day basis, you know, being able to manage through that uncertainty, I'm a very huge proponent and life will always come before work. And so even a lot of the, the heavy things happening in the world is giving, creating space, you know, giving time and an opportunity for them to talk and to share and discuss how they feel. We have a team psychologist coming in in a couple of weeks mm. to meet with my larger team just to figure out ways that they can cope and deal. And I do think that when you care about the person, it means much more for the work and it really builds a different kind of culture. And so I, yeah. I truly believe in that personally. I like being led in that way, but I also enjoy leading. And I also think that right now it's such a, a crazy time. And when mm. there is so much change, there's also a ton of opportunity for innovation. And I believe that good ideas come from anywhere. And so I've been a huge proponent of, Absolutely. hey, have brainstorms. Think about, forget what we've done. Let's think of what the world looks like in the future. How do we rethink things like the draft lottery, which we just did on Instagram Live, having an event, which was normally an event in person in the arena for hundreds of people, you know, with the NBA draft coming up. How do we rethink that as an experience? What do people want? And so I almost think that blue sky vision of, you know, there are no sacred cows let's be able to really shake things up is also exciting as an opportunity for growth and development for the team. 
Yeah, yeah. There's some innovation that's going to come because it has to come. Exactly. And some that just get accelerated, particularly in sectors like retail and all that in particular. But yeah, and I think this is a good time to pause. And of course, I think, you know, you're in the experience business. I think experience is going to come back with such demand, such demand. (laughs) But also it's going to expand on what it even means, too. I imagine there's a virtualness to it that you either thought about it before, but now it's going to be part of it, or maybe that you haven't thought about it before now will be part of it. Yeah, I mean, that's a great example. We have uh, our best, I'm mentoring basketball camps and clinics, and every year we executed physical camps, five-day camps, you know, where campers signed up, and they were able to play and learn the fundamentals of basketball from our coaches. And this year, because we had to cancel it completely, we had to go 100% virtual. And so the numbers of people that we were able to, you know, to reach on a, a weekly basis, we were able to almost quadruple that virtually within the first two weeks, you know, right. in, an, in another way out of necessity. But now we have multiple touch points. So ultimately, if we're able to go back to physical camps and clinics, we'll for sure do that. But having a virtual opportunity for kids to learn that maybe in different, you know, situations or different places, now we're, it's additive. And so I definitely think there's some things that will help. And the NBA has been, you know, on the forefront of how they've been able to create the experience of playoff basketball in the bubble and, and bringing virtual fans yep. in and understanding what that is, you know, I definitely think that that's going to play a role as we look to the sport in the future. Yeah, well, absolutely. And I think, and I think obviously with you and your team will be, you know, kind of trailblazing that as well too. So, so, so we'll, so something to look forward to. I look forward to my, to my Atlanta Hawks here, you know, <laughs> very soon, but, but let's, let's step back now because it's interesting here, here you're in the NBA um, and your time though, the NBA started down in Miami and, and the Miami mm-hmm. Heat, of course, as uh, as you know, as famous as the first you know female ball girl, I believe. Um, in the <laughs> well, NBA. for the Is Heat, correct? for the Heat, for I don't the know Heat. If it's okay, in the gotcha, NBA gotcha. overall, but definitely. Well, we'll just we'll just assume it. We'll just say you know, <laughs> you know we'll, we'll just for our conversation here, we'll just say it's first in the world. But so, but let's uh, but let's go back even a little bit before that because you know, looking at your book, and I, I just loved the picture you painted about growing up in Miami. Um, and how your Caribbean roots influenced you. And I love it because you planted it in the picture of food and pinatas at birthday parties and all that. It kind of brought me, you know, it's interesting, of course, you know, as you and I mentioned, for my Cuban heritage, there's some, you start seeing some of that connectivity yeah, in the absolutely. Caribbean. So it's pretty cool. So I love that. But talk a little bit about growing up in, in, in Miami and how it was in Caribbean and how you kind of thought about how you fit in the world at that time. You know, it's, it's a good one. I had such a a great childhood. You know, my mom was from Belize originally. My yeah. father's from Jamaica and they both moved to the States as adults. And so, you know, my mom was a nurse. My dad was a computer operator, programmer at a bank. Uh, and in my mind, he sorted checks. I remember that was like the biggest thing he did was sort checks. <laughs> That's right. Um, but, you know, growing up, culture was, was everything. And I, I didn't really understand the differences between black and white because obviously Miami mm. was a cultural melting pot of, of people. Um, and, you know, within those experiences growing up, I talk a lot about Caribbean carnival because that was something as a child that, you know, my mom had us in costumes and, you know, myself and my cousin were dancing down the street, my cousins. But, you know, I, I loved it. And I also had a passion for art. And so a lot of times if I would go to Belize, you know, during the summer or to Jamaica to visit family members, I would see things, whether it's, you know, sugarcane fields or you know, dogs, stray dogs walking on the street and it was all native. There was no resort kind of life or, you know, going to the Keys, going to church um, uh, with with friends. 
all of those things kind of brought about a very different perspective for me. My mom talked about going to nursing school in England and friends that she had in York. And, you know, (laughs) she would show pictures and she was the only black person in her entire class. And, you know, coming from Belize, I'm sure she, you know, had to deal with her fair share of challenges. Um, She actually showed me a document once when she had kidney issues and the doctor wrote, you know, this colored woman that came in to see Mm. me. And I was like, wow, this is a whole other world. But when I was in school and we had learned about, say it was Black History Month, we were talking about, you know, Martin Luther King or or Malcolm X, my mom and my father's perspective was so different because they didn't grow up in the States. And so we would have these conversations. And when people would see me from a perception standpoint, they're like, oh, you're a black woman. You know, you're descendants of slaves and this whole experience. And I didn't understand a lot of that because that wasn't what I was taught. That wasn't what my parents were taught. Obviously, you know, you go back even further. Absolutely. But there was a very different perspective of being kind of West Indian or Caribbean American versus African American. And there were times where, you know, my parents would say, wow, you know, you know, black American, this and that, because they're, they, they were, we were all different in that mindset. And me growing up in Miami, I am American a hundred percent. And so it was a very different discussion when I got into school, especially middle school, because then I was other, you know, I wasn't black enough Mm. to be black and I spoke too well. And so it was like, Oh, you know, you're an Oreo because you're white on the inside and black on the outside. And there were so many different things that I didn't really know how to place it until I got older and had more experiences and can understand that I have another level to me or, you know, understanding based on the experiences that I've had or the travels that I had done um, with my family that kind of adds a different level of richness to the tapestry, you know, if you will. And, And now, obviously, in the world that we're in, the playing field is so different because, you know, people are much more aware of injustice and what that means. And so people look at me, they see a black woman and that is you know, what I am. But I also have another level of understanding for other things culturally based on how I was raised. And so it was really interesting in Miami because uh, most of my friends were Cuban or Haitian or Dominican yeah. or Jamaican. And it was a very rich, especially from a food standpoint, you're talking about food, you right, know, absolutely. understanding of what life was. And, and I loved every minute of it. So how do you know, it's it's interesting as you talk about that, because it's almost an element of, you know, now, now there's so much discussion around inclusion, but there's also about belonging as well, too. And it seems for you, it's finding where do I, even if I'm included, do I belong or do I, or do I belong and not get included? I mean, how, how what do you believe that kind of perspective how do you bring that forward as an adult now or or even into your into your life or even in business does that shape a little bit of how you think Uh, absolutely I mean I am thankful for you know my mother and kind of the lessons because one of her biggest things for me is nothing needs a trial but a failure she's like as long as you ask Mm. always try that's the least you can do the worst they're going to say is no and so there was a, a bit of fearlessness that came from that that I don't think I had as much as I was younger but as I've grown especially in my career I'm, hey, I'm, I'm going to ask, you know, there is no glass ceiling. I'm always going to be willing to fight for. And some things I had to learn through experiences. You know, you ask certain questions, but what was perceived as probably other when I was younger became a right. tremendous opportunity and advantage as I got older. And so leaving Miami and going to college in Winston-Salem, North Carolina at Wake Forest was a 
completely different culture shock in a very different way <laughs> because I didn't know black and white. In my first day on campus, I remember you know, seeing my roommate and my name was Melissa Marie McGee and I don't know what she thought I looked like. Um, right. But it was a very like, whoa, okay. You know, and people asking to touch my hair, you know, in my dorm freshman year because they didn't have any black people in their neighborhood or in their schools or any interactions. And so mm. I think all those experiences combined, you know, with my youth and traveling and, and college really prepared me for the world that I live in now, you know, with corporate America and being able to understand differences in people, but at the same time being able to offer an authentic perspective based on who I am and what I've experienced and what I bring to the table. And I've had to be in a lot of different positions, whether they say from the White House yeah. to the Trap House and just being able to, to, and I won't even say be a chameleon because I do think there's some people and they talk a lot around, you know, kind of shifting you know, the conversation based on who they're around. I stay 100% me all the time, but right. being able to be strong in my core of who I am and then being willing to be myself in every instance and whether I'm accepted or not is something that I did have to develop over time. Well, and then when you were uh, young um, as well, you know, it's kind of another dimension. Um, um, it's as I was reading it, you were tested early for an interest in the arts. <laughs> uh, so did you did you kind of have that always have that in, in you or, or is that something that you test and you're surprised? Or? I always loved to draw. And, you know, my mom took me to this, you know, this gifted test and they were like, hey, this kid was drawn all over the board. You should she, you should, you know help develop her in that direction. And so, you know, thankfully my mom saw it and I, I went to a, um, a magnet school, they call them magnet, not charter schools in Miami at Southwood Middle School for the arts. And it was a visual arts program. And so instead mm. of having different electives or, you know, athletics, the focus was on the arts. And so that was my introduction into art classes and I loved it. Um, and you begin building a portfolio. I was like, oh, a portfolio, okay, you know, what is that? It's cool. <laughs> Um, and I would go and take art classes at different places, sculpture or whichever. But when I was preparing for high school, there was a local high school called Design and Architecture Senior High. And it was a, a magnet school that focused on graphic design, um, industrial design, architecture, fashion design. And I was so intrigued by it. And so I had to build a portfolio, do an interview, you know, in order to get accepted into the school. And I did. And it was probably one of the best things for me that really kind of transformed my thinking, because you were trained, you know, they had a whole Mac lab before <laughs> Mac labs right. were a thing and learning Cork Express and Photoshop at the beginnings of Adobe. And, you know, it was great. And this is high school. This is ninth, 10th grade. Um, yeah. And being able to really hone skills as a graphic designer and designing logos. And I was able to get an internship or and then a part time job with a local newspaper as a graphic designer. But all of that exposure would have never happened if, you know, my mom didn't see it and really cultivate my passion for the arts. And ultimately there, building a portfolio to get, you know, into college on an art scholarship, but then also start selling art because people, you know, were open to it. And when I began working for the Heat, some of the players, you know, loved my pieces and said, I want, you know, a piece of your art in my home. And so it really oh, transformed. I had a, a friend, I think it was my dad's friend. Um, yeah, a friend of the family who was a lawyer and said, hey, I'll help manage you. So it was helping wow. me write up contracts. <laughs> Real, literally, like writing up contracts and figuring out insurance. And I was doing gallery exhibitions in different art galleries around Florida. And this is 16, 17. Um, but it's like a whole other art world and career when I was much younger prior to, you know, really being able to experience the fullness of 
college and then corporate life. So it's kind of interesting. I mean, one, I, I love this kind of rich tapestry of culture, then already exposed to this arts, and, but also a business element too. So it wasn't just mm-hmm. you're being an artist for the sake of being an, you know, an art. I mean, you were, you were monetizing this That was business. actually one of my fears in going to art school because I had a lot of friends who were, we were all visual artists, you know, from middle school and high school. And they were like, well, we're going go to go to college. And many of them were going to Pratt or Parsons or FIT. And it was in amazing art schools, phenomenal schools. And I said, you know, I don't want to be a struggling artist. I had seen my mom not be great with money, you know, most of my young life. And I said, you know, I, I want to get a job. I didn't know what. Still don't want, I still don't know what I want to be when I grow up. Right. And I say that all the time. But I knew that I didn't want to struggle and be an artist. And so the, the decision to go to Wake Forest, I knew it was a good school. Um, and I could get there on an art scholarship, which was helpful. Didn't know what door, didn't even know what major I would be in. Um, But just kind of being open to that, knowing that I could always fall back on my art. I call it my super power skill that I can whip out. So much of it was I'll design a logo for you because I know how to monetize that. I I can help design something for you or sell a piece of art for you because I know how to monetize that. But that wouldn't be it. Right. Well, one thing that I would also want to kind of go back and I want to ask about how this all added up to what you wanted to be. But, but, But one thing that was in your book. And one thing that I do appreciate for those that were in Florida in that time, if I think about it, but I'm a few years older than you. So I remember going into my first kind of real job. It was in the insurance industry and then Hurricane Andrew hit. And uh, I was up yes. in Tampa and you t- talk about your, and, and let me just, for anyone who's listening, I mean, Hurricane Andrew is, was just the hurricane of hurricanes. I think it was a cat, officially a cat five. five. Or not, yeah, yeah it was a five. And that's just like movie stuff. And you actually were there and lived through that. So talk, talk about a little bit about that experience. Because I, I was just shocked when I heard that you were there. I mean, you were living like there. In, like in it. Yeah. Um, you know, it's interesting is growing up in Miami and people in the Caribbean, like hurricanes are like an everyday occurrence, you know, once you're in hurricane season, it's hurricane preparedness and get your batteries and have your canned food and, you know, buy your water. And so I remember before Hurricane Andrew, my mom went to work and I was hanging out with a family friend and I was like, mom, are we going to go? Because I'm watching the news. Are we going to go get stuff? And she's like, no, we'll be fine. (laughs) Like, it was like, it's just another tropical storm or, you know, it's going to rain. We'll be good. And And it still happens today with everybody. Yeah, literally. It happens so frequently. Um, and so I remember saying, okay, you know, I guess that's it. So, you know, we went home, we didn't board up our windows because there are some people who, you know, they have the hurricane shutters and all of that. We totally downplayed it. Um, and then we were, I went to bed and I I remember waking up in the night because the the storming pretty bad. And I went in my mom's room and I guess it, she, she never said it, but I could almost sense that she, had a little bit of like, oh man, this is a bad one, <laughs> you know, like yeah. it's storming pretty bad. And so she got up and she had stuff all over. I would say she was a borderline hoarder now that I'm an adult, but mm. at the time it was just the norm. And so she <laughs> went in her closet and had to clear it out. She had a lot of stuff in the closet and she was like, oh no, I'm just, I was like, what are you, I'm just clearing it out just in case. And I'm like, okay, you know, trying to sleep. And then literally someone, something came and broke our window. We didn't know what it was till the next morning, but Literally, someone's basketball goal came out of the ground and like went up oh. in the air and came through her bedroom window. And she said, oh, shit, man, in the closet. And so she and I literally ran into our closet and started praying. And that was it. I had a little radio. So we were kind of listening to what was happening. They were talking about the eye of the storm 
you know, beginning to pass over South Florida. And we were in Richmond Heights, which was very close right. to like where the eye passed over. And so, you know, water everywhere, hearing howling sounds, smelling gas. We had a gas stove and it moved in the middle of the night. But all these things I just remember so vividly because it definitely felt like a movie. Yeah. You know, and in the morning, I think I may have slept a little bit while we were in the closet and got up in the morning to assess the damage and, you know, had no windows, you know, and part of our roof is gone. And looking at everything that I knew as a child was when I was born, I came into this house, everything was gone. You know, it right. was, it shifted everything and then opening the door and looking around at the damage around us, you know, I ended up, you know, we walked to a, a friend's house that was down the street and they were in their bathtub with the father holding a piece of board over a window bracing their family from the storm and he was all bruised up from the wood. But over time, just learning around FEMA, having FEMA trucks and waiting in line uh -huh. for Red Cross food and everyone's food, obviously, you know, refrigeration, there was no electricity for weeks, no telephone. This was before cell phones were everywhere. So right. there were, I, I remember literally spray painting our address on our garage door to help insurance adjusters find our house. And right. that experience, and even when I saw, you know, like Katrina, you know, years later, I, it all came back to me. And even oh, to sure. this day, when it storms, like there's a part of me that kind of reverts back into I need to go in a closet just in seeing how big of a shift that was. But I really believe I was 12 at that time. And I grew up that year. It was totally the transition for me being a kid to an adult. Um, right. You know, that my parents got divorced earlier that year as well. So I really felt like I had to take care of my mother. But it was a, a tremendous experience that really definitely shaped my life. Yeah, it seems like, it, you know, just get the sense it was for you. It's like, you know, that life is real now. I mean, life is yeah. very real. Life is extremely real and it's life and death and survival or not. Yeah, I remember people sitting outside with their guns. You know, you loot, we shoot because all they're doing is protecting their property because there's nowhere, there's nowhere else to go. You know, people with no roof just kind of walking in circles, not knowing what to do. And, yeah. how, and, and really, I think more than anything at that time, it really just showed me how insignificant things are and the right. amount of importance that we place on stuff because literally that was in an instant overnight it all can go away and so just how important it is for time and experiences and you know that's that whole idea of life coming before work so much of that i believe was shaped at that time well that me. storm and i know neighborhoods were completely i believe it was kendall yeah, um, country down there completely just gone. country yeah completely Story. And, and look, it's, and else, it's serious. There's so much loss of life, it's a lot of loss of property and so much. So when I read that you were an actual survivor and not like I, you know, drove up to central Florida to get away from it, you were there. I was just, and not, and I knew it had to have a bigger moment than you than just another storm. And, um, so yeah, so glad you are safe, Melissa, and I'm with you. We'll, we'll we take storm seriously if you ever, <laughs> or even close to Andrew. Um, so, so, all right, so let's go. Let's go in a few more years uh, after that. Then, so here you are. You've um, first of all, you're an Andrew survivor, which deserves something uh, there. But uh, you talked about your your, your dad was was in some sort of computers. Your your mom was in healthcare. You okay. had this incredible propensity for the arts. You're monetizing uh, arts. You know, so you're an entrepreneur. So then, what did you want to do, though? What were you thinking? You did you see yourself as the uh, you know a top executive at a sports <laughs> franchise not. at that point? I didn't, you know, the whole idea of you can't be what you can't see is very mm -hmm. real. And I didn't know what I mm -hmm. wanted to be. And my mom would always say, if you're going to be in medicine, be a doctor, don't be a nurse. 
because she felt like, you know, nurses got the short end of the stick and the doctors came in and made all the money. And, and this is just her, you know, her mentality. And she right. loved being a nurse. Um, and, you know, my dad would always tell me to be a physical therapist because I would always have a job. Never showed any liking into physical therapy. He was, it was very just logical, functional, like you'll always have a job if you do this. And I remember I was 15. This was before I started selling, you know, any art or anything like that. My friends were starting to get jobs, you know, at retail shops and, and things. And I remember going to my mom telling her I wanted to get a job. And she was like, okay, well, you know, you can get a job, but you can only get a job in whatever you want to do for the rest of your life. And I don't hmm. know to this day, like, what hmm. made her say that. But it wasn't like, yeah, sure, go to Publix and buy groceries or whatever it is I could have done at the time based on my age. She's like, you can only get a job in whatever you want to do for the rest of your life. Wow. And I said, well, at the time, I had just really started getting into basketball because my parents weren't American. They weren't, they didn't watch American sports. So we didn't have football or basketball, like none of that. My dad was kind of into wrestling. To this day, he loves wrestling. That's his thing. <laughs> um, <laughs> I wasn't going to be one of the ladies of glow. So that wasn't an option. Exactly. <laughs> it was not an option. Um, so I told my mom, I said, you know, I had really liked watching basketball. So I said, you know, I want to be the first female coach in the NBA. I don't even mm. know if my mother knew what the NBA was. And she <laughs> said, okay, we'll go get a job in the NBA. And that was it. You know, it was like, well, that's a, good. I thought you were going to say, she said, no. you're, you're nuts. So she, she just said, said, if that's what it. you want to do, Fantastic. literally, if I said be the first female coach, it wasn't a deterrent. It was like, what are you coaching? Didn't even ask any questions. It was like, okay, wow. we'll go get a job in the NBA. And so I said, okay, because now I knew in my, 15 year old mind that's the only way I'm going to get a job so that's the direction I have to go in right and that's when I you know found some information contact yellow pages you know found a phone number and an address for the Miami Heat started writing letters uh to their head of community relations because I didn't know who else to call I think some operator probably told me that was a good place to start and I would draw on all of the letters that I sent you know and I would draw heat logos and basketballs and pictures of players um, and then finally, I got a call back from uh, the person on the community relations side. And he's like, hey, you know, I don't have any jobs for kids. You may want to try the equipment manager. You know, mm-hmm. they, they run the ball boys. And so I said, OK. And so I started calling and writing to this guy named Jay Sable, who's still with the heat to this day. And, you know, I, I explained, you know, I was a kid, art school, really into art, would love to, you know, work with the heat. And he uh, didn't respond for a while, and I was incredibly persistent. If there's anything that I learned from that right. experience, it was persistence. As I called and wrote and called and wrote. And I think at one point he said, if you call me again, I'm not going to hire you. And then I kept <laughs> on calling. And then uh, one day I, I finally really talked to him about the opportunity, and he really tried to discourage me. You know, He was like, this is grunt work. And you know, you come in hours before the game, you leave hours after it ends. You hand out Gatorade, you mop up sweat. We don't have any girls doing it, so I don't even know what you would do because all we have are boys. Oh, and by the way, it doesn't pay, which mm. kind of defeats the purpose of looking for a job. Right. But I was already so invested. I was like, I don't care. Um, you know, if I don't get paid, I would really you know, want this opportunity. And so he invited me to a preseason game and it was the very first sporting event I'd ever attended. Um, I had never been to an NBA game. No, oh, absolutely not. I had watched a couple games on TV with my cousin. Uh, And so I had no context of what the arena would be like and how it was, 
you know, all lit. For it's so big when you go into it. It's it television. Massive. Yes, yeah. it was television in person and going to the arena and trying to park and find a way to get in and all of that. And I remember he handed me an outfit. So I was excited to get free heat swag because it was sneakers. And I think Champion was the partner at the time. And, you know, I got a jacket. And then he was like, OK, well, go and rebound. And I didn't know how to rebound. I knew nothing. Um, and so there were some other ball kids who kind of showed me the ropes. Right. And I didn't know at the time. But one of the ball boys was Nick Arison, whose family owns the team. He's now the CEO of the Heat. And he was a ball boy with me. And so, you know, they taught me how to make a mop out of a broom and a towel and some tape. So that was kind of my job. I was the mop maker. Yeah. Um, and then, you know, showed me how to rebound and kind of how to hustle. And so some of them were like, yeah, help the guys carry their bags to the bus or their cars and make a couple dollars. You know, and by the end of the first night, like I had learned so much, you know, and, and Jay said, you know, come back, you know, come back for the next game. And I think he tipped me 20 bucks. And yeah. so the visiting equipment manager would probably give some cash to the home team manager to, you know, tip out the ball kids. And that was how you got paid right. at the time. But it was tremendous. And then ultimately, you know, Nick Arison, he has a sister named Kelly who would be courtside with her parents watching the games. But as soon as I was a ball girl, she came on to be a ball girl as well. And so we together were the first oh, ball wow. girls for the Heat. Um, and they did a little write up in the Heat magazine about us and about my artwork. But it was one of the best jobs I've ever had because I learned so much. The players started teaching me how to pass and how to rebound. And, you know, Stan Van Gundy was an assistant coach for the Heat at the time. And so he, they call me Queen, like Queen Latifah, uh, <laughs> because that was my favorite show, Living Single, at the time. And they'd say, hey, Queen, you know, come rebound. And, you know, he'd say, hey, come set this pick. Or I would, you know, stand there and help him run drills with the players, you know, before the game. You know, we would do free throw shootouts with some of the guys just in having fun. But I ended up working so hard trying to be the best that I could be in that position. And I really believe that it almost set the groundwork for the role that I have today. You know, being able to interact from players to security to, you know, ownership to, you know, Sylvester Stallone, who used to sit behind me at the games while I was mopping oh, wow. sweat and being able to work in that environment and, you know, interact with everyone and kind of do what needed to be done. It was fantastic. And your book, there's some great pictures of you sitting with, <laughs> I think, I think Spike Lee, I think, you know, just so many celebrities and of course, players. And of course, it's touched my heart. When I saw Kobe, yeah. um, you know, one of the, the, the pictures, you know, you were able to meet him. So, and you did that for, a, I guess, a couple of years. So yeah. you went to college? Mm -hmm. Yeah. I did it for about two, two and a half seasons. And then I went to Wake. But during the summers, I would still come back to Miami and volunteer. You know, I, would call up, you know, a great woman, Shivani Desai, who worked in the team and at, in basketball operations. I said, hey, what can I do? How can I help? And it was, you know, help put together, you know, booklets for scouting reports. So, you know, some summers it was, you know, three hole puncher putting together right. binders. Sometimes it was helping take players to workouts or running packages from their practice facility to, you know, a coach's home or whichever. Hmm. I would do anything, which is really just the opportunity to learn more about the game and the business of basketball. Um, and then, you know, during my time as a ball kid, I wanted to learn everything from Pat Riley because at the time I still wanted to coach, even yeah. though I didn't know what I was doing. And so Pat Riley would write up plays and I would pick up the papers that he wrote the plays on and make binders and, you know, try to keep it to learn, and which was helpful because, you know, a couple of years later, uh, the Heat had launched the Miami Soul, the WNBA team. Right. And I was able to help during that summer that I was home 
from college, you know, and onboarding the, the team and helping with the female referees and, you know, having other ball girls who are all girls working on the court. And that was a really great kind of full circle experience from when I started till, you know, that point. And how to keep building that that confidence in you too. To, I mean, you here you are with your persistence being the first, you know, to doing something. And then it opened up so many doors, it seems like, or access or experiences for you. Yeah, I think it was more experiences. And honestly, at the time, I had no idea what the hell I was doing. It was so much <laughs> more just, it was fun, you know? I, yeah. I ended up having, I want to say, three jobs when I was 16. I was volunteering with the University of Miami women's basketball team because I just wanted to learn more about basketball. I was... Uh, doing graphic design for the local newspaper. And so a couple of days a week, I would go mm. and help do that. Then I started working for the Heat, and my dad was like, we got to get a car. Like, we can't take you to all these <laughs> places. And so I started driving, you know, myself, and, and then I would make art on the weekends. And my mom would laugh because people would be like, oh, you know, almost is 16, she has a car, she's probably out partying. And she was like, no, she's actually home <laughs> painting in the garage or asleep. I went to bed at eight o'clock every night, you know, when I wasn't working just because that's what I did. And so I just think I was incredibly focused. Um, But I didn't know in what direction. It was just the joy and the passion of what I was doing. Yeah. So, uh, and and you were still being driven by being, wanting to be the first NBA, female NBA coach. Yeah. Early, um, on. early on. So when did that change? Was this was this the change before you went to Wake, or that happened at um, Wake? When did, when did you start changing your objectives? When I when I was at Wake, and and honestly, I think it was probably a conversation with Bob McAdoo, who was you know an okay. NBA great and was an assistant at the time, and we were just talking in general about coaching, and I was telling him how I wanted to be the first female coach in the NBA, and he was like, you know, that's awesome, you know, and you could do it, but it's really hard for a man to respect you if you haven't played their game. And I don't even think mm-hmm. it meant like on a male, female side, but like I never played basketball. Like I was never on a basketball team. And so <laughs> I was like, I can understand how that may be a factor. Um, yeah. But then also I was just, I got to learn so much more around the business side and the whole idea of you can't be what you can't see. I didn't know there was a corporate structure within an NBA right. team, you know, and not even marketing or graphic designers who work for the team. So I was exposed to you know, agencies who were doing design work for the Heat. And, you know, I would go and ask them questions and go visit their agency. So I think just in time and through that experience, I got exposure to other things that kind of opened up my mind. Still didn't know yeah. what I wanted to do, but I knew that there was more. Well, and, and here you are. You have this incredible experience. You got to know people with the Miami Heat organization. You're at Wake Forest, great school. And your degree, I forgot, what was your degree again? I was at, a at communications Wake? major and a studio art minor. So communication, studio art, you're doing what you love. You, you, and then, so you're graduating from Wake. You're going to get that big job at the MBA. And? <laughs> they turned me down and said I was too wow. creative. I applied for a management training program and I just knew it wasn't my gig and had all types of letters of recommendation from players and coaches. And, you know, they said I came highly recommended because I know I did. And I did my interviews (laughs) and they went really well. And they said, you know, we are a business and your, your background, you're a little bit too creative for us. You know, and over time I got to understand the NBA with a lot of attorneys, people would joke and say it stood for nothing but attorneys. But, Mm. you know, at the time, I mean, it wasn't, my skill set wasn't, currency then and so I was also thinking of just staying at Wake because you know that's what every college student does if you don't know what you want to do just stay in school you know right it'll be it'll be fine 
Um, and so I applied to stay and get a master's in communications because I loved, you know, comms as a major and really on the more academic side because I was interested in teaching. Right. And I interviewed for uh, that opportunity to stay in the master's program. And the head of the program, who I was great friends with, said, Melissa, we love you here. You know, you've been a great student and we think they're using this as a crutch so that we're not going to give it to you. So we're not going to even allow you wow. to stay at Wake Forest um, because we believe that you're destined for bigger and better things. And I wow. was honored and pissed off at the same time because I had absolutely no idea what to do next. Um, wow. the, the sure bet that I thought I had didn't work out and the backup plan didn't work out. Um, and then by chance, a woman named Beth Hutchins told me about an internship program at Turner Broadcasting. And I didn't know what Turner was. And all it said was, send us your talent in a project. And that was wow. it. So, so you ended up going to Turner Broadcasting. Yeah. And so I know you had, you know, kind of a kind of big part. What are the different things you did over at Turner? Because you had definitely d different roles throughout oh, time. Wow. And you were at Turner during a pretty special time, it too. There's a lot of growth of the me that media uh, property. Yeah, it was an uh, amazing time. time in the cable business and industry looking to rival broadcast and how that growth happened. And, you know, the, the proliferation of brands and really defining brands and what that meant for cable operators. And so when I started, I was in marketing for TNT. Yeah. which is really a marketing generalist, which is probably the best you know, ground-based knowledge of marketing I could have received at the time. Um, and they offered me a position to stay. And I was so young. I was like, I don't know if I just want to be here. So I actually quit altogether uh, to go to grad school in London. And oh, so wow. I, I left for a year. I went to go to Central St. Martin's College of Art and Design in London um, which was a tremendous opportunity. And while I was there, met someone from Turner's UK team and lucked up into an internship at Turner UK just in wanting to help build out a corporate social responsibility division. So I call that my second job at Turner, but it really right. wasn't what it was. Um, and so I did that full time while I was in school full time uh, for the year, came back to Atlanta. I worked for a couple of years as an HD graphics producer. So think mm. of all the little moving animations at the bottom of the screen. Oh, boy. You know, watch this show tonight at seven. I was the one making those things, um, which was a little bit of my design background, uh, but also getting to understand how TV got made. And at the time, we were building out an internal agency um, on the creative side for TBS and TNT. So I got to really help bridge the gap between creative and marketing, which was great. And then after that, we had, um, I think Turner had just acquired Court TV as a brand. And so I got to finally get a position in brand strategy. I went to grad school for branding. So I was able to get a brand, you know, director role and uh, really helping to do the rebrand from Court TV to True TV as a brand manager, which was great. So I did that for uh, about a year and some change. And then the world shifted a little once that rebrand was completed. And so for maybe for about a year, I worked with an organizational psychologist uh, mm. within Turner and not on the HR side, but in the business side to help build a brand for our company and really define what our internal culture should be. So what is our mission, our vision, you know, and interviewing everyone from SVP all the way down to intern to have input into how it takes shape. And so that was a really great project and just understanding how important culture is to business success. Um, and so, you know, coming out of that role or that project, I went over to our internal media group. So we have an, Turner had a Turner Media Group internal media buying and planning team. 
And uh, the new leader of that group had asked, you know, all the CMOs what they were looking for from a media planner. And they said, you know, we need insights. You know, let us know around consumer insights and media trends and what's happening in the world outside of television. And so they tapped me to come over and help kind of build this out, what it was going to be. So we created the insights and inspiration group which was myself <laughs> and two people. And we would work with all of the CMOs and the marketing teams on media trends and consumer insights. And we had never really been a, tr- a trend forecasting company, but, you know, right. started looking at new tools and, you know, going to places we hadn't traditionally gone before to bring these insights in to see how it could impact our business. So that was an awesome job. Uh, did that for a couple of years. And then it transitioned into needing um, one of my old bosses, Jennifer Dorian, who was phenomenal, mm. went over to also assist from a network business strategy standpoint, Cartoon Network and Adult Swim in our animated young adults division. And so she said, hey, I could use your help in looking at you know, long range planning and a lot of the business acumen and things that I hadn't necessarily been able to work on explicitly during my other more creative roles. And so for a while, I was able to go there and partner with their president at the time and really building out this kind of strategy division, thinking of going over the top with Adult Swim. And it was really the difference in the evolution of the cable business, where it could be headed. And so it was a tremendous opportunity. And I think in that role, I really got to learn around the learn about the target audience that TBS had years before it would be the TBS audience. And so Mm, it was great what you can learn from, you know, just, I get to, I love understanding people and why they do what they do, seeing what kids are doing and how that will evolve over time of how businesses can evolve was fascinating. Um, and while in that position, uh, Turner Sports was launching a, a product uh, they wanted to have that really was more consumer facing because uh, Turner Sports as a division was kind of behind the scenes. And so they called it Project Move and they asked for a representative from every business. So I was asked to be the representative from the kids business. Little did I know that would become my next job at Turner, (laughs) which was launching a brand called Upway, which was all around health and wellness and making it fun. And so it was kind of taking the quantified self, so Fitbits, fuel bands, whichever, and taking all that data and developing content to make it relevant. So working with Tim Ferriss on a show, developed a cooking Mm. show called Cook Your Ass Off around like healthy cooking. And really, you know, health and wellness with a fun slant uh, called Upway, ultimately was called Upway as a brand. And that was my last role in Turner. And I want to say at the time they invested millions into this kind of new ideas startup within the company, which I was excited about. And once uh, one CEO left, a new CEO came in, it was the last business unit started and the first one cut. And that was kind of how I exited Turner. Um, At the time I was eight months pregnant. I had gotten married a year earlier and eight months pregnant with my, my only child. And they said, hey, guess what? The whole division's going away. Wow. Um, and so I had to kind of let go of my team and focus on having my daughter. But that was my entire kind of Turner career. And when I was leaving, the HR team said, no, you can't leave. You're like the intern turned VP. And they would yeah. have me out recruiting and speaking to people. And I had such passion for the company and all that I had learned and the experiences that I've had in it from both you know, locally and internationally. But, you know, when it's time to go, sometimes it may not be your choice, but it was time to go. And sometimes it, it, it's just as good for you. I mean, obviously, you know, leaving a company is never ideal when, it, when, it's not, when you're not the one initiating it. But it obviously opened up some incredible doors for you as well. Um, and, and it, you know, it's interesting as I listen to you talk about your Turner experience. You know, it, you know, it seems like you've been really able to take 
advantage of a big company and their scale and their opportunities. It's almost you got like a quadruple MBA. Yeah, absolutely. In your time in Turner. Absolutely. I think so much of it was really raising my hand to take on jobs that no one else wanted mm. or looking for gaps and opportunities. You know, at one point when I was doing my creative role, I really wanted to get into branding and there were no branding jobs. And so there was yeah. a company that I had volunteered with outside called Free Hugs. And we did cool stuff and held up, you know, signs that said free hugs. We all need one and made shirts and sold them. And I was able to build, bring a partnership together between that brand and TBS that made sense in presenting it to, you know, leadership internally around why this partnership made sense. And I really helped, I really think that that experience helped them see me in a different way, not just as a creative art girl, but someone who understood branding and strategic partnerships. And I really am thankful that Turner did have all those kind of different opportunities and departments that I could raise my hand and, and help because, you know, people talk about a ladder career versus a lattice and mine was been incredibly lattice. Like I didn't right. go looking for this job or a lot of things is based on the work that I was doing. Someone said, Hey, it'd be, you know, you'd be a great person to do this. And I learned that my strength was having a blank sheet of paper and being able to figure out yeah. what to do with it, where some people need it black and white, like give me clear directions and I'll point me where to go and I'll go. I think my creative, you know, visual arts experience almost translated more into being able to creatively solve business challenges in new and unique ways, which ultimately yeah. kind of lent itself to this, I don't know what I need to create, but I know that you can help me do it and it will be awesome. Well, and I love that. And something you just mentioned uh, as well was you were going to the jobs no one else wanted to do, but you kind of, you, you almost were creating these jobs. I think that it's a consistent pattern, you know, where you see, you see leaders like you who are change leaders and that's part of it, like lean into kind of the unknown, um, which I think goes back to you've been comfortable with that all the way down to when you didn't know you were comfortable with it as a child. So, so I think that's tremendous. Now you mentioned uh, a name there, which I, which totally makes sense with what you're doing, because this is someone else who leans into it. But Jennifer Dorian, who just an amazing person, yeah, and yeah. you know, uh, just great strategist, change leader, brand leader, and you you talk about her. She's she was a not just a boss, but she was a mentor to, uh, to you. Talk talk about I guess the value not just of that relationship, but what that taught you about mentorship and the value of that and how you see that now as a leader? Yeah, you know, what's so interesting is when I first started as an intern at Turner, Jennifer and another woman named Jenna were the brand team. So there were two people who worked on branding and they sat, you know, within the marketing department, but kind of off on the side. And I was always intrigued by what exactly that meant um, right. and why and what they did and why it was different. And so I remember setting up an informational meeting with her because I had heard amazing things about her. And I said, oh, you know, what do you do? And how does what you do impact what I do? And, and she kind of gave me the vision of what branding was and setting the foundation. So for, you know, at the time, TNT to be about drama, defining what that drama brand meant and then being able to bring that to life in new and unique ways. So they were looking at having an award ceremony or she said, you know, imagine you were in an airport and there was a TNT store Someone needs to figure out what that experience would be. So what would they sell in a TNT store? What, what would you see when you walked in the door? And that got my creative mind going. I was like, wow, mm -hmm. this is so big. And so by defining what the brand is, then you can have all the components of the brand, which could be the shows. 
and so explaining how I was marketing the shows, but her role was really looking at the foundational piece of the brand and how that can grow and evolve over time. And I was like, wow, you know, I, that sounds so cool. I'd love to work with you. And she was kind of like, everyone wants to work for me. And I was like, oh, wow. <laughs> and not in a bad way, but it was the truth. No, I and I was just, just like, <laughs> man, that's tough. And so not at all discouraged, but just kind of like, okay. Um, and I remember asking her, you know, like what she was working on. And she was explaining to me how at the time TNT, uh, which was sold by an ad sales team out of New York, you know, TNT at the time was like the Law & Order Network. They had a lot of reruns and I think 55 plus kind of target demo. But the people who were selling the network were all young. They were like 25 to 30, 30-ish. Um, and so she wanted a way to connect them to the brand for them to care more about it so that it would sell it. And so she had this idea of putting together these dramatic occasion kits, you know, and things to kind of meet them where they are. Because through research, she found out that most of them were kind of experiencing life's first. They were getting married for the first time or having their first child, buying their first house. And so she thought if she could create something from TNT that met them in that emotional moment where they are, you know, it could pull out a heartstring and give them a different feeling towards the brand, which I thought was brilliant. Right. And so I said, oh, okay. So what are you thinking? And she's like, well, I don't know. I'm trying to figure out what to put in these kids. And so literally that day, I had that meeting probably in the afternoon. I went home and I literally got pencil and paper and I started sketching. I sketched hmm. a here comes drama baby onesie. I sketched a drama king and drama queen robe. I sketched a drama is wedding picture frame and a lot of other ideas. And I kind of packaged them together. And the next morning, I remember going into her office um, and saying, hey, you know, thank you for the meeting. Thought about what you were talking about. I had some cool ideas. What do you think of these? And she was amazed. And she was like, wow, not only are these super creative, but they're incredibly strategic in that it's something that I can actually execute. It's not just a you know, cool idea to have. And so they ended up actually making these kits with the stuff that I had designed and working with a premium person. And I got to help with the design process. And so I think at that moment, what I had learned from her was just the willingness to accept good ideas from anywhere you know, not necessarily if you're an intern that just started or right. a senior person who's been here, but it was really the idea of, you know, becoming an asset to someone versus a liability. And when mm. I talk to people around networking and relationship building, I was like, if you think about it, normally if you are meeting with someone, it's because you want something from them. You want a job, you want to know how they got to where they are. And it's very much about me, not about them. And so by asking her that simple question, you know, like, what's keeping you up at night? What are you working on? What are your points of pain or needs? And she told me about these occasion kits. I could have heard that and walked out the door, right. you know, but instead I took an action to make myself an asset to her in some way. I wanted to give back for her offering of time that she invested in me. And I think what it really did was, one, give her a different perspective on who I was and what I brought to the table, because after that she had an invitation to some party. She was like, hey, can you help me design? I'm sure I can, because that's you know, what I do. I'm the art kid. Um, but we also then developed a great you know, friendship, mutually beneficial relationship. Mm. And when I went to grad school in London, I'd ask her about books that I should be reading and you know, ideas on my thesis dissertation that I was writing. Even as I wrote my book, Bagra with CMO, she was one of the mentors and people that I reached out to to get feedback from, because I value and respect her opinion so much and all that she's done in her career, but also just as a person, she's an awesome person. And yeah. so I really think that was probably my first adult mentor in a way that that relationship has definitely evolved, 
you know, over time to be much more of a friendship and still a mentor. But right. I really, really, really just appreciated that lesson of becoming an asset. And she'll talk about it like you were different. You actually thought about it and took the time to give back. And I think that's such a great lesson for anybody. And I just happened, happened to learn it in real time. You know, it, was, it wasn't taught to me. It's, it's like being authentic to the relationship, authentic to, you know, the purpose versus superficial, you know, which I think goes back to authentic leadership in general. Yeah. I mean, I, I had a no jerk policy. So even in mentorship, <laughs> if I was found someone I really wanted to get to know more about and I met them and they were an idiot, I'd be like, OK, that was great. But, you know, I don't need to force that by the nature of trying to make something happen. I think it was definitely a mutually right. uh, beneficial, but also a respectful relationship. Well, you had so much, uh, you know, talking about the relationships you built and experiences at Turner. Then, um, then your next big career step was going to the Atlanta Hawks. And so we talked a little bit about what you're doing at the Hawks, but you came into the Hawks at a time that the, the, the brand, the organization was kind of rebuilding itself. Just talk a little bit of kind of your kind of path getting onto the Hawks in terms of what you kind of really focused on that led you to being now uh, in this role of CMO um, uh, currently? Sure. Um, when I got to the Hawks, I mean, the goal was we needed to brand the team. And yeah. the idea that, you know, you can't be all things to all people, we really had to work hard to define who our target audience was going to be. Um, and so let's looking at all types of research from, you know, television ratings and census data to ticket sales data to, you know, every bit of proprietary research within the organization to really look at, you know, the state of the union. And what we really learned was, you know, the Atlanta, Atlanta is a really big basketball city, you know, top ratings for a lot of the big events. But from a Atlanta Hawks perspective, there was a lot of apathy. And a lot of it stemmed from the trading leak, you know, going way mm -hmm. back to then. And we found that there was a, an interesting opportunity because as kind of the millennial age group was growing in the city, uh, and so were multicultural audiences, there was a new, not even psychographic or demographic, we call them next generation Atlantans. Because mm -hmm. I knew that if someone came from a different city, if you were from Boston, you would love the Celtics. There was nothing I could get you to do to not love the Celtics if you're from Boston. Right. But if you were from Boston, you moved to Atlanta and you had a child or you, know, you started a family, I could absolutely make myself the team for your kid. And so that mindset is almost looking at it as a generational fan building strategy of how do we really look to build that next generation of fans at our core and keep them in over time. And so our previous uniform design with the feather patterns and volt color was all intentional to really reach this younger demographic. We had a Sprite hip hop concert series. We did a lot of different things to really reach out to this next generation Atlanta um, fan base. And then also in re the transformation um, from Phillips Arena to State Farm Arena, was right. a great opportunity for us to build, bring our true to, Atlanta, true to Atlanta mantra to life. And so what things could we do to make sure that our building would be like no other building in the nation? And if you walked into it in any other city, it wouldn't make sense for anywhere but Atlanta. So right. a piece of A-Town Down mural and working with local artists and, you know, from J.R. Crickets and Old Lady Gang to a Zach Brown restaurant in the building to working with Killer Mike and building out a swag shop where you could get your hair cut and watch the game. Like that type of swag is only Atlanta. And right. so by really building the brand for that next gen audience, in addition to multicultural audiences, 
we're in one of the top African-American cities in the nation. We can't run away from that. We need to lean into that and make sure that we are 100% a community asset. As our ownership team has you know, said many times, that's what we're going to be first and foremost before we're a basketball team. We're going to be an asset to this community. So building courts all around you know, the city for kids to have a safe place to play, being the first team to hire a chief diversity and inclusion officer you know, of any professional sporting team you know, in the States, like it's a big deal. And I think building that brand from the very beginning and defining that audience kind of led to all the strategic decisions that have helped align us to where we are today. And so, you know, from coming in from brand uh, VP of brand strategy, then ultimately SVP of business strategy, how do we look at doing this from a digital perspective or monetizing our social platforms in different ways and really kind of looking at it through the business lens to ultimately, which landed into as we looked at doing our uh, practice facility in partnership with Emory, you know, and the beginning of our arena transformation, there were a lot of big creative projects happening and a focus needed to be had on the marketing operations side. And so I kind of came into marketing initially, focused more on the operational pieces. And then over time, it continued to evolve and grow in scope, you know, to where it is today. Um, But I believe that that groundwork, just as Jennifer mentioned, the foundation that was laid when I first started in that brand strategy role is exactly what we're continuing to build on our brand story to this day. So it seems like whether you're at the Hawks or at Turner or even, you know, growing up as a kid, change and seeking change is a constant part of your life. You almost, it seems like you almost crave it or, or run towards it. I, or, so do, or do you seek those roles that, that are looking for, that want change? Or do you find yourself in a role because it's a cool thing and it happens naturally? Just what, what's that, How do you see that connection? That's a great question. I almost feel like uh, when I was going through my grad school dissertation on uh, becoming a self-brand, I asked the question of many people, like, what, how, what word they used to define me? And open was the word that I got more than any mm. other word. So I do feel like there's an openness because the only thing constant is change, no matter what we try to do to stop it. And, right. and so I think that I'm probably more... Uh, my reaction to it may be different than others because as it sure. comes, you know, Steve Coonan, my, my, my boss now, our CEO of the Hawks, talks a lot about playing in the gray. He's like, you know, your strength is you're able to play in the gray. You don't need to have all the rules defined. Like we can create it as we go along. And I feel like my creative background plays so well into that, which gives me the opportunity to, you know, want to shake things up a little bit or want to kind of see how we can do it in a unique way and not just for change's sake. But, you know, to see how we can improve, you know, the outcome or the business. Um, to your question, though, I, it's funny because I, I feel like I'm very OCD in a lot of ways with people like, how are you an artist? But you're very you know, clean and orderly and about process. And I have this creative and strategic side that are constantly, I won't say at odds, but working, you know, in conjunction together. I really, and I, I mentioned this in the book, I talk about my guiding principles because, it's something that I learned, you know, from mentors earlier on in my career, and I had to take time to define what that meant for me. But for me, that's almost the constant. So regardless of the change happening around, as long as I'm true to my guiding principles, that's what makes me feel like I'm aligned, if mm-hmm. that makes sense. And so for me, yeah. you know, they were one, being in a position where I can be both creative and strategic, because I knew that creative for creative sake is the reason why I didn't want to just be an artist when I was younger. Right. You know, and the strategic side really feeds something within me as well. So that's important. The second is I get bored very easily. 
Um, so I do think that's the reason why I'm also very open. But being able to always add new tools to my personal toolbox is important. If I can do something in my sleep, I don't need to be there. Um, the third is my mom was horrible with money growing up. And so, mm. you know, for me, I, it was always important that I'm able to pay my bills on time. I didn't want anyone calling me, you know, telling me I owe them anything and I want to pay them early. And since I had my daughter, the idea of investing in the future is very important to me. Right. Um, so that is a critical one. You know, the fourth kind of comes with having to be a caregiver for my mother. Um, when I left for college, she went out on disability and I'm an only child. And so I've always needed the flexibility to go take care of her when she was alive in Florida or at her nursing home when I moved her to Georgia and now transferred to my daughter. If I need to leave to go to a dance recital at four o'clock on a Tuesday, I need the flexibility to do that. So some right. sort of work-life harmony is very important, especially for someone that values life over work in any instance. And then I think the final one for me is being able to bring my entire self, you know, whether it's to work or, mm. you know, to any situation all the time. I have locks, I have a nose ring, I'm a black woman, I am unapologetically me. I would way rather be in uh, some Jordans and sweatpants than a pantsuit. Um, but that's who I am. And if those things are aligned, then I am, that's almost a filter that I can put any opportunity up against. And so, right. you know, it could be change is happening all the time, but more than likely if a change is happening, it's feeding into those guiding principles. So strategically it makes sense for me. Absolutely. It keeps, keeps you authentic to you. Absolutely. And then brings your best self to the, to the, any role you're in. Now, um, I'm sure that on these journeys too, you have naysayers, whether they're, you can't do whatever it is for the business or whether it is, you can't do it because you, you know, because you shouldn't do it or you can't be the first ball girl. Mm -hmm. How do you deal with, uh, how do you deal with naysayers in your life? Um, I'd like to say I don't hear them, uh, mm. because for the most part, you know, like I'd say my father, when I wanted to be a ball girl was like, don't do that. That's terrible. Um, I'm very self-assured. If there's something that I want to do, I have friends who will say, it's like, even if we think it's a horrible idea, if Melissa wants to do it, she's going to do it because that is kind of how I'm wired. And I'll learn, you know, after the fact, but you know, when people are either, I'll say haters or, you know, like, oh, well, you know, I don't really think that's a smart decision to me, I'm like, that's okay. And every now and then I'm, I hear it. You know, I mean, I can't say I completely ignore it. It's like, I take it with a grain of salt, but I know that whatever my strategic rationale is for doing something is always going to weigh out over whatever I've heard. Um, I think when I was more junior in my career, it was, it was harder. You know, I was very much a people pleaser. I wanted to make sure that everyone liked me. I wanted to make sure that I was doing the thing. And then I really very quickly learned that's not feasible, right, <laughs> especially right. not in corporate America. And it's not that it's much more being true to who you are. Now, I don't want to just, you know, be an idiot for the sake of doing that either. But, you know, at the same time, I do think there's an important level of understanding, you know, who you are and the things that you need. And then, you know, sometimes people are entitled to their opinions, but you can respectfully disagree. Right. So, uh, Melissa, we're going to transition a little bit uh, here as we get close to wrapping up. And first of all, some quick response questions. Uh-oh. So we'll kind of change tangents a little bit. Cool. Get to know a little bit of Melissa that we may not know. Maybe everybody does know. So first of all, favorite sport, and I'm going to just spare any sort of tension with the NBA outside of basketball. 
Is there any other sport outside of basketball? I don't know. <laughs> you know what? I, I would know. not expect any other answer from a CMO <laughs> for the Atlanta Hawks. <laughs> well, when I was a kid, I did love playing tennis. I will say I, I was an extreme tennis fan for a while. I, I don't follow it as much these days, but in terms of playing, I love tennis. Perfect. Okay. See, there you go. And of course, you support all the other local teams Absolutely. around town. Uh, favorite food and or restaurant, which might, you know, during this uh, quarantine COVID era, might be favorite <laughs> carry out or, right. you know, delivery. Favorite Uber Eats order. Um, yeah. My favorite restaurant, I have to be true to my, my peeps. And so Tassa Roti Shop um, in Marietta, Paris Ferry, uh, a good friend of mine. I was a fan and I would eat there often and now I'm, I'm friends with the ownership. But Tassa is a Trinidadian restaurant. Um, and it's a buffet. I mean, they have a buffet, but there's also a ton of food on the menu. But it is phenomenal. It was featured on Atlanta Eats uh, a while oh, back. And every time it's on, people are like, I thought I saw you there. Because I was definitely there. Favorite, hands down, favorite restaurant in Atlanta. <laughs> Perfect. I'll have to check it out. This is, this is a selfish list, so I could figure out where to go <laughs> after we could go. Uh, so favorite um, movie and or book and or show or series, you know, whether it's a streaming thing, uh, what's your, what, what are you into? Oh, that's a, a hard one. So like, I want to say my favorite movie of all time is coming to America just because it makes me I've laugh. heard that before. Every time. And, and you know what? Love it. <laughs> Every time. What I'm yeah. into right now, which was very odd for me because it's not necessarily by kind of, no, oh, I can't say, I can't say that. Umbrella Academy is so awesome to me at the moment. Really? Streaming, that's what I'm watching on Netflix right now. I want to say I watched all of season one in a weekend and I've been trying to space out season two because I don't want it to end. Um, but uh, one of the things that I love that very few people probably know is I was a huge Hobbit fan and Harry Potter ah, fan. There you go. I have my magic wand from the Wizarding Worlds on my mantle and my daughter's like, I can't wait for her to get, we're reading Harry Potter <laughs> together right now. Um, but I love the creativity of both those series. It's beautiful, beautiful. And I did not know that, so that's great. Um, okay, here's, here's one. Uh, what is your pet peeve, whether it's with your coworkers or with your personal life? What's the thing that just oh, drives you life. crazy? Oh, let's not talk about that. Uh, a couple <laughs> of small ones. It's funny because when I think of like my own pet peeves, I would say I I understand it, but I can't stand when people are intimidated by me. So when I am in a meeting or something, someone will be like, oh my gosh, you're Melissa Proctor. I, I just, I can't, wow. I just, I, I just, I, I, or someone won't speak to me because you're like, well, I was so intimidated to talk to you. But then as soon as they come in, they're like, oh my gosh, you're so cool. I'm like back. And, and it's the perception of what, either based on my role or my title or what people think right. I am versus who I am. But I'm like, take the time. And I understand it because I'm sure if I was not myself and I may have like, oh, wow, I, I would be more curious. But everyone is different. Right. But when I hear like, you are so intimidating, I'm like me? What? Come on. I mean, Alex, come on. <laughs> come on. <laughs> but I get it. They don't know you yet. But they I don't know it. you yet. But I, they, it, exactly. I'm like, yeah. they don't know me. But so it's about being, it's, you know, it's kind of cool. It's like being a, be authentic to yourself. Yeah. Well, here's kind of, I want to kind of go on the opposite side of that. What habit or habit, see I said hobbit because of your, your <laughs> Like Lord of the Rings, man. <laughs> what habit uh, drives 
either your coworkers or your family crazy of yours. So what habit of what is the pet peeves about oh, you? Oh, my pet OCD. Like if someone is at my okay. house and they are eating something and they put an empty wrapper down, like it will be in the trash before they can look around. And they're like, I wasn't <laughs> done with that. I wanted to read the information. Like I am. That is just me. I'm very much a, a clean, tidy person. So I know does, I have friends. Does that, that like, does that include the digital? So are you like inbox zero and all that? You know, I used to be until I've been in this role. I think since I had my daughter, I've given that up. So I'm probably at like 2,500 <laughs> now. Before, I would have heart palpitations if I couldn't see the bottom of my inbox. But that's one that I would love to get back to. But I don't think life will set it up in that way for me. I'll send you a screenshot of my inbox. <laughs> That you're going for the day. All right. So um, finally, I realize as we wrap up here, this is, doesn't have to be a, this could be a little bit, you could elaborate more on this one, but uh, you, you talked about in your book and definitely will recommend everybody make sure you get from ball girls to CMO. Um, and uh, we'll have the link in our show notes here and uh, to get deeper into Melissa's background and her story. But you talk about the, the impact um, and how your mom still inspires you today. Um, so kind of taking that. And if you think about, how you want your daughter to think, or if she were to say, you know, this is what my mom left me or how she inspired me growing up, what would that be? Oh, that's a good question. I mean, I would say for her and the thing that I tell her more than anything else these days is to always do your best. And I think it's what my mom absolutely instilled in me. And it created this fearlessness of like, as long as you do your best, you can't do any more and I'm satisfied and I'm happy with you and I want you to be happy with you too. And that idea takes shape in a lot of different ways because, you know, professionally it can be, I try to take on this project and I gave it my all and it sucked. At the end of the day, I knew I gave it my all. So like, I can't even be mad that it sucked. You know, it's kind of like I did the best I could and you can walk away and have no feelings of regret or coulda, shoulda, woulda. And then personally, Uh, It relates to, you know, even how I treat people, you know, if someone is in my life, I'm going to give it a hundred percent and I don't know how to do half of that. And so even in taking care of my mom when she was alive, I moved her from Florida to Atlanta. She was in a nursing home here before she passed away and everything that I could do, you know, give to her time I could spend with her, what I could provide for her, I did. And so when she passed away, I had family members that are like, you know, how are you feeling? And I'm like, I'm okay. And they're like, how are you so okay? And I was like, because she knew that I loved her and I gave her everything. Like she couldn't ask for anything more of me or even for herself. And there's a piece that goes along with that. And so I really try to instill that in my daughter today, even in schoolwork. It's like, oh, I didn't get 100%. I'm like, did you do your best? Yeah. I'm like, and I love this 82% that mm. you're bringing home. I am so Beautiful. happy because you, you gave it your all. And that's it. I mean, that's all we can do as people. Well, that is beautiful. It's, it's perfect. And it's so much coming back to being your authentic self, which is so much about you, Melissa. So once again, make sure you get Melissa's uh, book and, and just follow Melissa. She is as, and, and don't be afraid to approach her when you see her. Yes, don't be please. intimidated, please. Don't, so, don't. Melissa, as, as I suspected, we could go on for hours. I feel like we, we just set a baseline here, just scratch the surface. So we'll go ahead and start planning on part two here, hopefully in person. <laughs> I look forward uh, to Once all this crisis ends. But thank you again for being on the Disruptor Studio. And uh, I'm sure you're going to inspire many people. Oh, well, thank you for having me. And please, you know, feel free. Follow me on Instagram at Melissa M. Proctor. Love to chat and do not be afraid.
That was Melissa Proctor here on the Disruptor Studio, and just wow, what a great conversation! And I hope you're as inspired as I am. It's great catching up with Melissa and really getting into her amazing journey. And Melissa, like so many people that we bring here in the Disruptor Studio, definitely has that special X factor and its authenticity. Melissa has incredible confidence in who she is and doesn't pretend to be anybody else. And she brings that to its full potential in everything she does, which is why so many people are willing to follow Melissa. And she's just an amazing person. So once again, thank you for joining the Disruptor Studio. Make sure you join us every few weeks as we bring leaders onto the show that inspire innovation, transformation, and greatness. I'm Alex Gonzalez, and we'll see you again in a few weeks.